Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Arcananth Podcast. It's your host, Dr. Michael Rivera. The Arcananth Podcast is a podcast all about human biology, history, and evolution. And three times a week, we feature conversations with specialists in these fields. Today, I am pleased to introduce you to Dr. Kara Hoover. Kara, are you there? Yes. Hello. Hi. How are you today, Kara? I'm doing great. <laughs> where are you calling in from? Lexington, Kentucky, where it's currently snowing. Oh, wow. I, I didn't know that it snows in Kentucky. Uh, yes, it does, actually. <laughs> it's uh, kind of at a high, higher latitude than most people think. Mm-hmm. And uh, are you normally based in uh, Kentucky? No, I'm currently on uh, partial leave this year. So I'm working out of Lexington, Kentucky, teaching online. My job is at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks. So that's where I normally am based. Mm-hmm. I'm just here right now. Okay. Yeah. And um, largely speaking, you know, what would you say your job is? Like, it, there are many different areas in biological anthropology. And I'm curious to know, like, how do you self-identify? So I'm an associate professor at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. I'm currently in the process of going up for full professor. Mm -hmm. And I started my career in bioarchaeology. I was particularly interested in adaptation and stress that comes with adaptation. Those interests continue today. And for the past 10 years, I've been focused on the evolution of human olfaction. Mm -hmm. And that drew my interest because I... um, wondered how it is that people adapt to new environments when all the resources they're used to are no longer available or changed in a different kind of form. Mm -hmm. So I'd say that the larger areas in anthropology I focus on are human adaptation, human variation genetically, as well as phenotypically, and also uh, stress responses. Mm -hmm. So developmental stress. Right. And when you mention like olfaction, when it comes to like our sense of smell in humans, earlier when you were going, uh, undergoing your education, in anthropology. Did you have a lot of sensory anthropology or sensory biology uh, education? Like was, was there a lot of familiarity in the scientific literature with the role of smell in like human evolution? No, I didn't have much information on the senses. I actually came to this because I was teaching a class in evolutionary anthropology and I was focusing on different systems of the body. And one of the units that I taught was on the senses and olfaction intrigued me because it is the only sense to which we respond with behavioral outputs without even thinking about it, but certainly emotional outputs. Mm -hmm. So we might be experiencing a smell through an emotional response, through a memory before we stop and think about what's happening to us. Whereas all the other sensory information is processed in the frontal lobe, the part of the brain that's associated with abstract thought and reasoning. Mm -hmm. So the information gets bundled in different parts of the brain and sent there for us to think about. Whereas smell happens immediately. So it's incredibly visceral. And I thought that was really interesting. And I thought that might be one of the ways that we adapt to new environments by having this Mm -hmm. emotional memory laden sense that helps us respond before we even can think about it. I was reading um, other interviews with you and I know that uh, something that you noted early on in your research into olfaction was that, you know, compared to some of the other senses, like perhaps like taste or sight, smell was understudied. Do you have any um, sort of reasoning as to why that might have been? Well, certainly in anthropology, one of the critiques that I get sometimes when I try to publish in anthropology journals is a very outmoded way of thinking. People draw either on Freud on the cultural side and say, well, Freud said that as soon as we became higher reasoning beings, our sense of smell was primitive and not useful. And I've actually had that critique in three different peer reviews in anthropology journals. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other side of the equation is evolutionary side. So people who study fossil evolution, the hard tissues that remain, 
they also say something similar that as soon as our noses left the ground, when we became bipedal, we were removed from the smellscape. And both of these things are absolutely wrong. First of all, Freud was a cocaine addict and he probably had no sense of smell. <laughs> and, in and in terms of evolution, uh, the smellscape exists everywhere. We just moved into a different smellscape. Odor plumes are dynamic. Mm -hmm. They're dependent on the environment. They're dependent on not only on the biota in the environment, the environmental conditions, things like temperature, humidity, but they're also dependent on the things that move in the environment. So odor plumes are constantly changing, which means the things that we smell vary throughout the day, throughout, you know, from day to day, even a fixed source of a smell, your ability to smell it from the same spot each day will change. Mm -hmm. So it's a different odorscape. We smell different things. We became adapted to different things, but it doesn't mean that just because we were no longer quadrupedal, we stopped smelling. Yeah. And I imagine, um, because I don't, I don't work in such deep time in terms of the questions I asked in my research myself, but I'm curious to know, like, when you go back that far, when you're talking about some of the first humans to live and to smell, how do we, you know, study that information? Because, from from what I understand, you have maybe fossil evidence, but the fossil evidence is not always in, in good condition and they, they don't come in great numbers. Do you use fossils? Do you use other kinds of evidence? I don't use fossils, but there have been some very interesting studies that have looked at the morphology of the nasal cavities in order to determine the airflow, how air might be distributed, which helps us understand a little bit more um, differences in olfactory ability using heart tissues. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're quite there yet in terms of the methods in assessing heart tissue understanding of smell. But I think that there's definitely more people interested in the question and more people trying to find out ways to study it. So one of the problems with looking at morphology is that in our noses, we, as everyone knows, it's lined with, you know, kind of a skin and epithelium mm -hmm. and there's a mucus that's secreted in that. And that helps keep the environment moist and it helps trap particulate matter that we inhale that might be harmful to us. So where our sense of smell lies, however, is in a tiny recess in the upper part of the nose. And that's the part of the epithelium that's called the olfactory epithelium. The epithelium in general is, um, the respiratory epithelium. So there's only a small part in which mm -hmm. the little receptors that bind these chemicals that smell to the, to create a process of perception where it sends the information to the brain. So when we're looking at fossils, understanding where that particular portion of the epithelium <clears throat> might be, is going to be very challenging because we don't have mm -hmm. the soft tissue. And then you know, we have to would create 3D models, which is what people are doing and simulating airflow to see how much air might get pushed up. So we're approaching maybe a point at which we can understand a bit more using fossil morphology, but it's a little bit um, imprecise right, right now. Right. There's another interesting study that was done by Deborah Bird, and she looked at the cribriform plate, which people who study osteology will know is a kind of porous little uh, bone that is it's kind of inside the skull, above, behind the nose, and it's it's incredibly um, delicate, and it's often not preserved unless the skull's whole because it is so delicate. Mm -hmm. And that little plate has lots of holes in it called um, foramina, and the olfactory receptors go through that and reach the olfactory epithelium that I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And 
by looking at the size of this plate across a variety of different species, she was able to determine that the size of the plate is a direct proxy for the olfactory bulb. And that is another piece of soft tissue anatomy. It's the second pathway in perception. First, an odorant binds to the receptor, and then it goes to the olfactory bulb, then it goes to the brain, just two synapses. So that olfactory bulb is really important because there are a lot of studies showing that the olfactory bulb size is a marker of olfactory ability. And even within a species, changes in the bulb are linked to olfactory ability. So people who suffer from chronic respiratory illnesses, sinus problems, lots of air pollution tend to have smaller olfactory bulbs than people who don't. Mm -hmm. So this was a really interesting hard tissue way of getting at potential ability to smell. So those are the two ways we could use ancient materials. The way that I study ancient fossils uh, is through paleogenomic approaches. Hmm. So these are very limited because we only have a small number of paleogenomes given the difficulty in DNA being preserved. So colder climates, drier climates are better for DNA preservation. So we have lots of northern latitude fossils. We've got six or seven different species of Neanderthal that have been sequenced, as well as a couple of Denisovans, which live in Siberia, used to live in Siberia. Mm -hmm. So by using these um, paleogenomes, we can look at the olfactory receptor genes and look at mutations in those genes. And then we can recreate the proteins themselves and test what they were able to smell. Mm -hmm. So it's a very direct measure of what their receptors could detect. Now, the missing link here is that we have no brains. We don't know how those odors were perceived. We can just say in a human, this is what this receptor binds. Mm -hmm. And in an Neanderthal, it binds something else or it binds the same thing, but more weakly or more strongly. Right. That sounds like um, just like different approaches to finding like different pieces of a puzzle. Are you working in a in a large team? Are you able to analyze this by yourself? Oh, I'm working in a, with a group of people. So I do the bioinformatics work, which is the dry lab side of things where you process the data and create the sequences that are needed for the lab and identify the mutants that are of interest. Mm-hmm. And then my colleague, Dr. Hiroaki Matsunami at Duke University, uh, he and his postdoc, Claire DeMarch, do the um, functional testing. Mm-hmm. And uh, what would you say are like some of the biggest challenges when you're doing such paleogenomic work? Well, when it comes to the sequence data themselves, uh, the data that I use come out of the Max Planck Leipzig um, Evolutionary Anthropology Labs, and they do excellent work and they do a very rigorous job of trying to identify whether the variant that has been called is a real variant or an artifact of sequencing mm-hmm. or potentially something that has happened in the process of the DNA degrading over time. Mm-hmm. But that is still a challenge. You know, are you looking at something that's a real variant? Um, And they have a variety of mathematical algorithms that they apply to these data as they come off the sequencer. And they do very rigorous mapping to the human genome. And they also do multiple reads. So I'm fairly confident that with these high coverage genomes, we have reliable data. And by high coverage, I mean that they've actually read a sequence multiple times, so 30, 50 times, finding mm-hmm. again and again and again. So it doesn't seem likely at a certain point that it's an artifact or um, of the sequencing if you come across it 30 or 50 times. Mm-hmm. Then you have to determine at that point, well, is this a po- degradation? So certain parts of the genome degrade more rapidly than others and changes happen that might be part of just decay over time. And they have other ways that they treat that as well. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Is is there anything that we can say already about, um, you know, Neanderthals, Denisovans, and you know, extinct uh, humans that 
you know, once lived and how they smelt their environments or are the results still sort of, sort of We coming? are testing one or two specimens that just were sequenced after we did our initial data collection. Mm-hmm. And since our initial data collection, Max Planck has come up with a different variant calling profile. Uh, I won't go into the details of that, but we wanted to relook at the original data that we had tested and make sure that everything still conforms to our understanding. Mm-hmm. But a few take-homes that we found in our original pass, which have yet to be confirmed in the second pass, are that humans definitely align more with Neanderthals. Denisovans seem to have accumulated more mutations and that humans appear to, or our receptors, seem to be more active in binding odorants. So they bind earlier and more odorants. Mm-hmm. So it might be that we are a little bit more sensitive in our sense of smell. and this was suggested with a morphological approach of the nasal cavities comparing humans and Neanderthals. So it's kind of, you know, a nice parallel if, of course, we do uphold those findings in our second pass. Mm -hmm. And is there something that we can say, understanding that uh, about, you know, survival and how, you know, ancient humans were interacting with their environment? Like, what are the larger implications of um, these results? Well, one of the things that could be very interesting, and I'm not sure we're able to do it at this point, we're still thinking about it, is to try to understand where differences lie between these species, humans and Neanderthals, or humans and Denisova, or Denisova and Neanderthal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, see if there are ecologically salient odors that emerge. Um, One of the kind of interesting things is, and I don't know again if this will be upheld in our second pass, but it seems like a lot of the receptors that bind grassy odors are non-functional in Denisova. And that would be potentially, I'm not going to say it is relaxed selection, obviously, but if you're living in an environment that's cold and that's tundra, Mm -hmm. having lived in Fairbanks, Alaska for 10 years, we don't have much grass there. (laughs) So it seems like those wouldn't be very useful. And there have been several papers arguing that maybe humans are exhibiting relaxed selection in our olfactory receptors, which is why we have more variants. And those variants change our perception, but it could be that it's part of the process of... um, selection not conserving our original gene set that maybe what we were tuned to isn't as important anymore. These are very speculative statements and Mm -hmm. I wouldn't argue for any of them positively. It's just kind of where some people are thinking the data are taking them. Other people say, no, there's active selection taking place in the human genome. So it's really unclear yet. You know, I mean, even though I started by saying that olfaction is understudied in anthropology for those two potential reasons on the cultural anthropology side and the evolution side, um, there are a lot of people who've been studying human olfaction in genetics, biology, and psychology, Mm -hmm. but it still is understudied in those disciplines. And there still is so much more that we need to know than we do know. So I'd be hesitant to say that looking at some sequence data for an olfactory receptor is deterministic of the sense of smell because there are lots of other things that contribute to it biologically and genomically as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I understand that um, like in in your human evolutionary research and some uh, other like bioarchaeological research, you also are really um, interested in this uh, question about um, survival and resilience and stress. And I was wondering if you could um, maybe describe the broad body of work that you have done in this area as well. So when it comes to to um, resilience, it was an idea I had working in Alaska because we had uh, an NSF um, PhD funded program uh, on adaptation and resilience. So I joined the faculty associated with that when I arrived there and I learned a lot more about the resilience literature. And there are lots of problems with it, not in the ecological side where it originated, but on many of the applications that have been made, particularly to developing areas. Mm -hmm. So in a nutshell, resilience is looking at 
ecological systems as either resilient or not resilient. And if they are resilient, they're able to absorb change and they're able to potentially reform through absorbing the change. And one of the issues with resilience, the way it's been commonly taken outside of ecology is um, it's either you're resilient or you collapse or die. And it's too simplistic. And my definition there was quite simplistic as well. But uh, I thought it would be very interesting to think about cultural resilience the way we think about biological resilience. Mm -hmm. And so biological resilience, we can go all the way back to Waddington's original papers in the 40s that focused on this idea that you have a genetic pathway that in an ideal world would produce a phenotype, the physical appearance of that trait. Um, And that we don't live in an ideal world. So when we move outside those life in a vacuum, Mm -hmm. we have environmental factors that interfere with development and sometimes alter it slightly, so much so that you wouldn't even notice that there's a difference in the outcome. Mm -hmm. Uh, Other times it's quite drastic and that's when we look at things like developmental defects and so on. Mm -hmm. So there are genetic contributions to this, obviously, where you might have a mutation, but the environment itself can shape the outcome of your genetic trajectory. So I was thinking that's our kind of way of looking at biological resilience. How can your development buffer the environment to produce the desired phenotype, mm-hmm. whether that phenotype is darker skin color to protect from you know radiation from the sun, or whether that phenotype is some kind of blood trait that provides resistance to disease. So how well does your body, you know, your entire system buffer that environmental challenge if there is one in order to produce that desired phenotype? Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of thought about resilience on the cultural side of things you know, on a a macro scale, not just an individual, but a whole group of people, or if you're looking at ecology, an entire ecosystem, how well are you able to buffer Mm -hmm. those challenges? And if the desired phenotype is not delivered, if the deviation is narrow enough that it doesn't really matter, that suggests resilience. Or if you actually have a very deviant phenotype, but it's still successful, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So, I was interested in tying those two things together in bioarchaeology because one of my critiques of the field has been that we don't really have a very strong theory that ties it together. We have, you know, you know, in bioarchaeology, we're informed by things from medical sciences, using the heart tissues of the body. We're informed to an extent by evolutionary theory. We're informed um, by, you know, these physiological approaches, how the body responds to stress. But there's not a big unifying theory. And I thought this could be an interesting way of thinking about theory in bioarchaeology. So if we understand in bioarchaeology that we're always interested in the body in context, the bodies in context. But this is a way to look at the cultural context as resilient and the body is resilient. So too often in bioarch, people say health declined, which means collapse or un- lack of success. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that may not be the case because we quite often see declines in health, recoveries. You know, in a bioarchaeology, we're constrained by the samples that we have. And quite often they're cemetery samples and we don't know when all of the bodies were deposited. So we don't actually have a nice time slice. Mm-hmm. So we don't know body A came from the very first settlement of this area and body, you know, Z comes from the very end of the period and we can stack up changes throughout time. We just get a static picture. So I think quite often we can, and this is not my critique of the field, but this is one of the problems that bioarchaeology grapples with. How do we understand change over time when we don't have that time element? We do sometimes, but a lot of the time we don't. Mm -hmm. So you know, this is a way of kind of thinking about those two things together. Look at the overall cultural picture, look at the biological picture and see if they match up. And if they don't, how we might explain the differences. Mm -hmm. 
And so those are like the, the theoretical um, like foundations. And I, yeah, it makes me, it brings me back to like when I was an undergrad and we would go through, uh, you know, theories um, in our field, such as uh, that this thing called the osteological paradox and how when we, when we look at things like, you know, disease on skeletons or look at health in skeletons, uh, the problem is that you can say that, oh, look at, look at these people who have uh, perished. Were they necessarily like the weakest ones because they were diseased or were they the most resilient ones and the strongest ones because they survived with those diseases to then have like lesions appear? Theoretical dilemmas like this. And I yes, just, yeah, yes. I find it really interesting, basically. Yeah. And I think this can contribute to the notion of the osteological paradox, which other people have been um, like Sharon DeWitt. Some of her work has been helping us push beyond that initial problem and try to identify some solutions. And I think that you know, the binding together, the idea of cultural resilience and evidence of that and how that can then also help explain the biological resilience we see or don't see can be quite interesting too and understand a little bit more about whether diseased is healthy and or adaptive or whether diseased is individual lack of success Mm -hmm. or larger lack of success. In what context do you uh, study these questions? Most of the work I've done has been on prehistoric hunter-gatherers, North America, as well as Japan. Mm -hmm. More of the recent work has been in Japan and um, also in um, archaic, some of the earliest uh, remains in North America and the archaic period in Florida is the main other area that I've done this work in. Mm -hmm. How how come uh, you've sort of chosen like these coastlines? Uh, and, and coastal populations. I guess coastal populations have a very specific adaptation. Not all Japanese populations are coastal and not all of the archaic were coastal adapted, but they certainly did use those resources. Mm-hmm. But I think that coastal populations um, are, like I said, a unique adaptation, part of the links to Alaska and trying to understand the situation in Alaska. When I was in Alaska, it was useful thinking about comparisons, you know, deep time data that we can get from archaeology Mm. and understand resilience and change, uh, success or lack of success over time, we could then kind of think about late native Alaskan populations and their current trajectories relative to the challenges that the Western world and political interests are placing on them Mm -hmm. and try to get an understanding of what was successful and what wasn't successful. And it's also, you know, just kind of also a little bit... um, opportunistic in the sense that the archaic Florida populations grew out of my research when I was doing my MA of Florida State mm-hmm. and Japan, a lot of Japan is coastal. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, it's a series of islands and there are some inland populations. Uh, and I think I've looked at a few of the inland populations when I was looking at variation in mandibular morphology, but most of the uh, old populations from Japan are coastal and definitely maritime adapted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, when you are looking at these questions, um, I'm wondering, you know, do, do you think that it's an exciting time in in terms of, uh, you know, human evolutionary science? I think so, yes, because we have so many tools available to us now, both on the excavation side of things, imaging side of things, but also on the genetics and biology side of things. So I think that um, we are definitely better able to get more data out of the small number of specimens available than we ever have been in the past. Mm -hmm. I think it's a challenging time too, because we have, you know, a long history, um, you know, a couple hundred years of people who've been examining fossils in very specific ways. And those ways are now not the primary way, but 
are placed alongside other approaches and techniques. So mm-hmm. I think it is really challenging for people who are just starting the field and at the opposite end of the spectrum, people are very senior in the field because there have been so many changes across the careers of those senior people and the younger people coming in, you know, have to, to deal with the kind of, you know, hegemony of research mm-hmm. alongside also understanding new approaches and techniques. So it's kind of interesting politically, but it's also very interesting scientifically because we can just, we know so much more now than we ever did before. Mm-hmm. And I think besides like the hegemony, it's also the kind of like the widening of like perspectives that you can include to answer like one question. And so anthropologists who are like um, coming up now, they sort of have to familiarize themselves with like the tools of the trade of like many different disciplines and different uh, frameworks because, you know, now all of these different fields are bringing insights uh, that are useful for answering these questions. I think so. And I think more importantly, the diversity that we see, at least in the graduate school and early career stage of people who are coming to the discipline, the questions they bring that are very diametrically opposed to older questions. I mean, just the idea that I mentioned at the very beginning of our interview that people used to say um, in anthropology that once we took our noses up into the air because of bipedalism, smell wasn't important. Mm -hmm. So we we have these, you know, it's just like in every discipline, very white male centric approaches to research. And I think that our field of bioanthropology has had a lot more uh, input from diverse sources. And we still are lacking in quite a few of those areas, but we still have certainly more of a gender balance in our conferences and our output. But, you know, like every discipline, those people advancing further in the field is extremely challenging. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a shame because what we see from any diverse scientific field is multitude of perspectives that can ask new and interesting questions and more importantly look at existing data in new ways and uncover things that were not found before Mm -hmm. so i think that that's part of why it's exciting today and you know hopefully we'll be able to stay on track and make things better in that regard Mm -hmm. and when it comes to uh, studies on resilience or studies on olfaction what do you think are like some of the you know wider implications or applications of the research that you and your colleagues do in these areas for people who are not anthropologists in the public who, you know, are just living day to day. What do you think are some of the wider implications? Well, the applied aspect of my research that I'm slowly building is the effect of air pollution on olfaction. And there have been several studies by physiologists and medical doctors in Mexico City and a few other places showing that air pollution causes diminished olfaction. (laughs) And that is a serious issue around the world because pollution is very high in many places. But the other side of this in my work, and I've written um, one paper on it, and hopefully another will be coming out soon, is that the risk for olfactory dysfunction is not equitable in the sense that more some places are exposed to more pollution than others. And within those places that experience a heavier burden of air pollution, some people are more buffered than others. Mm-hmm. So, and this falls along traditional socio-demographic lines. So the further down you are in the hierarchy of access to good resources, the more you are exposed to negative sensory environments, which would include air pollution, but other negative sensory components too, loud noises, living near airports, living on bus lines, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and visuals, you know, blighted urban spaces because of lack of urban investment, lack of resources to keep these places clean and safe and beautiful like other parts of the city. Mm-hmm. So we have 
on top of that increased pollution from being located near factories, being located near rendering plants, being located near landfills, Mm -hmm. those sorts of things. So that to me is something that I think most people can relate to because most people, even if they don't think about their sense of smell, don't want to be exposed to more pollution Mm -hmm. and more sensory blight. (laughs) So um, I think that's very relatable. And I think that it's kind of interesting thinking about resilience just now in our conversation, because one of the, the small emerging studies that are being done on the links between olfaction and sociability suggests that people with a better sense of smell are more resilient. They live longer, they have better social networks, they have more sexual partners. So these are things that are central to human adaptation and evolution, survival, reproduction, Mm -hmm. access to more sexual partners, bigger social network, all of those things are vital to us as primates. And all of these things are linked to a good sense of smell. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's definitely some, some ideas that could be worked up regarding olfaction and resilience. Really interesting. Is, are there, is there research that is sort of like, um, you know, bringing those questions and approaches and methods like into the urban landscape as well and studying people who live in a, you know, very urbanized environment? Uh, no, I'm the only, well, so the only, there's the medical studies showing the links between air pollution and um, damaged olfactory tissues and reduced olfaction. But in terms of the, the lived experience of people in an urban envi- environment, obviously there's a large group of a large, large body of literature yeah. on environmental justice. And, you know, they've not been focusing specifically on the sensory components of it, but I think there's a few people who are talking a little bit more about it. There's a big EU funded program called Denoses, which is looking at offensive odors. So not just pollution, but other sources of offensive odors and um, mapping them and trying to get, I think they have an app now where you can mm-hmm contribute data so we can get kind of global maps of odor, negative odor hotspots. And there's a few other researchers. Um, I think Christy Spackman is one of the people I follow on Twitter. And I think she's been talking a little bit about um, negative olfactory impacts of pollution as well. Mm-hmm. And then of course, my work that I've been sensory inequities is what I was calling it with the primary focus on olfaction. Um, so it's it's kind of emerging, not very strong, um, and certainly not in terms of thinking about resilience or tying together these other aspects that I just mentioned, like sociability, sociability and um, you know this kind of deeper evolutionary context. So I think that's something that's unique to anthropology that I can bring to this mm-hmm. field of mm-hmm. study. So um, I I first like um, invited you to to be interviewed because I had come across a book that you had contributed to. Uh, you had co-written. Uh, a chapter in a book called like how to run a city like Amazon and other fables. Oh, and now just to be clear, I didn't co, no, oh, okay. I contributed a chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, the three editors of, of the book are geographers and it was, it was all their work, but I contributed a co-authored chapter yes. in the book. Yes. yes. So you, you yeah, co, co-wrote a chapter. Um, and uh, I don't want to give too much away. Um, but basically the concept of the whole book is that, um, there are sort of like short stories. Some of them are more, uh, factual and sort of, uh, descriptive. Some of them are like science fiction, uh, little short stories like this. And, um, each chapter kind of imagines an urban environment that is run by a corporation, <laughs> um, and, uh, run by Twitter. Uh, that's, that's one of the chapters. Uh, another chapter is like a city that's run by Bitcoin, another one by like, uh, Google or Elsevier, uh, and your chapter that you co-wrote, um, with your colleague, Jeremy Crampton is the one on like Cambridge Analytica. And I don't want to spoil it too much, but can you sort of like describe, um, 
the concept behind uh, this chapter? Sure. Let me just start by saying that Rob Kitchen, who envisioned this collective, wanted to do take a creative approach because he himself is a fiction author. I think he writes crime stories hmm. and he wanted everyone to contribute fiction, but not everybody was comfortable taking that approach or maybe didn't find a fictional angle to it. Uh, but we liked the idea. and We worked it up just kind of casually chatting about it where you know, we're in a world now where data privacy is very important to many people, and it certainly is a hot topic in the news when privacy violations, uh, you know, are reported on. And not everyone cares, though. I mean, people talk about it, they're aware of it, they're concerned about it, but do they put it into practice or do they just keep on clicking agree to terms, agree to terms, <laughs> so they can use the app sort of thing. And we're all guilty of not being as good as we should be about these, you know, acceptance of terms. So we were thinking, well, you know, it, what what if somebody desperately wanted to be tracked and studied and be part of that collective? Maybe it's kind of a, a little bit like a millennial approach to, you know, data privacy today, where they don't seem as very concerned about these issues. So we had a character who couldn't wait till she was eighteen and be an adult and get her smartphone. And in the world we envisioned, because of all these data privacy issues and protection of minors. Children weren't allowed to have smartphones until they were legally an adult. And in this girl's case, she couldn't wait to get her first smartphone and go shopping and have people tell her exactly what she was looking for, go to a restaurant and then offer her her favorite foods. Mm -hmm. And when she goes to pick it up, she encounters a variety of problems that are crushing for her. And that's what our story is based on, this idea that she couldn't belong. Mm -hmm even though she desperately wanted to belong. That's really interesting. And, and how did you um, first get invited to uh, be part of this project? Well, my co-author is colleagues. He's a geographer. He's colleagues with Rob Kitchen and he got the call. Mm-hmm. And uh, then he was talking to me about how interesting the project was. And he'd chosen Cambridge Analytica because at that time, uh, when we first got that call, the Cambridge Analytica violation of Facebook data had just broken. So it was really um, in the news mm-hmm. and it was one of the, the biggest data violations ever. So we grabbed that and started talking about the, the idea about use of data, you know, because he's very interested in surveillance and data privacy and uh, government surveillance and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of emerged organically from that. Mm-hmm. And when we're thinking about like surveillance, uh, have you done uh, research in this area as well? Like what were you able to contribute or what perspectives from from anthropology were you able to put into this chapter? Oh, well, um, I came up with all the genetic disorders she has that makes her unable to get her smartphone. (laughs) And uh, as also as a lifelong avid science fiction reader, you know, this idea of a kind of near future, uh, you know, slightly to the left of, you know, or right, however you like to put it, not politically, Mm -hmm. um, just slightly aside from our world today, kind of envisioning what's happening now, where that might go in a very short period of time, not making it too futuristic, but um, we both liked the idea of kind of playing with this idea. So the chapter is called The Unseen Woman, and that's because she's not seen by all the data grabbers because she can't participate. Mm. And um, so, yeah, if that's, I suppose, the anthropological perspective in mm-hmm. this case was more the genetic disorders and the rest came from my love of science fiction Mm -hmm. and our conversations about who this person is and what the world's like and, you know, what the the parameters of the story should be to expose each of the different challenges she encounters. Mm -hmm. Do you think that we live in an age where this sort of thing is realistic like all the different short stories there or like when people like go on netflix and they enjoy black mirror episodes like do you think that that is realistic you know it's hard to say you know this is one of the things that have come up in our conversations about surveillance that it's all over the place 
there are news stories about it. There are data privacy advocacy groups. There's all kinds of pushback against big data going off the grid, only using your phone for a phone and not using the apps and not being part of memberships that track your buying and you know all of these kinds of things. There's such a hyper awareness of it. Mm-hmm. But I've often wondered what the actual practice is. We know about it, but does anybody practice data privacy actively or enough? So this is kind of part of a study we did uh, looking at people's response to surveillance at music festivals. Mm-hmm. And we thought that music festivals, uh, you know, to me, they constitute a nice natural lab because when we think about surveillance, it's part of our life from when we get up in the morning to when we go to bed. And we aren't really aware when small, new, extra bits of surveillance emerge. Um, and we just kind of incorporate it gradually into our lives without questioning it too much, maybe slight irritation. So you're, you know, you live in a place like London, which is probably the most heavily (laughs) cameraed city in the world. And you don't notice when yet another CCTV goes up. Everywhere you look, there's clusters of CCTVs everywhere. Right. Everything you do is filmed. So people don't think about it so much. So if you ask somebody on the street, you know, in a, in a large city like that, where you get that kind of surveillance or the average person who uses a smartphone and a variety of computer apps and so on, they probably won't know how much and they probably don't notice changes. So I thought the music festival is a really neat environment because it happens once a year. And if you go to the same festival every year, you will drastically know when measures are rolled out. So, mm-hmm. oh, this year I have to walk through a knife arch, which is a metal detector in US terms, and knife arch in British terms, since they don't allow guns, so people carry knives if they want to do mischief or right. protect themselves. Um, so you would notice that. I didn't have to do that last year. This year I have to do it. I don't like that. I don't like the festival vibe anymore. So we thought it'd be a really neat way of trying to understand how aware people are of surveillance. So these kinds of short stories that were in... Um, the, how to run a, the city, you know, run a city like Amazon and other fables, this idea of how aware people are of these kinds of big corporate measures. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we just did a little pilot study on that to try to understand, you know, is it real? You know, the question you asked, you know, like, are these things imaginable or are they not imaginable? Let's start with seeing how much they affect people mm-hmm. in their decision-making process mm-hmm. today. Right. That's really interesting. And I, I feel like um, there are like a lot of my, not a lot of my friends, but some friends who have, you know, make a decision to, you know, delete Facebook or um, they will not, I don't know, they'll, they'll be very careful basically about like uh, agreeing to terms and conditions when they download a new app, for example. So yeah, it's really yeah, interesting. I think that um, what we found in that study was that uh, males are more likely to ignore surveillance, thinking it won't affect them. And that's not really surprising. Mm -hmm. We didn't collect ethnicity data in that first study. We were doing a second one that will. And we think that our sample probably was a little homogenous based on the festivals that people mentioned they went to. Mm -hmm. So we suspect that it probably was largely a white male demographic. And that might be why they weren't bothered by surveillance because they experienced more privilege. But the people that were most affected by surveillance were females and they were very divided. Some people felt it was good and other females felt it was terrible. I think the one thing most females agreed on was that having some kind of a police presence gave you the outlet to report a violation 
but it didn't prevent the violation from happening, nor Mm -hmm. did surveillance. Mm -hmm. And then non-binary respondents, which were a very small category, uh, had a very different perspective. They, They not only did they go to festivals for different reasons than people who chose a binary gender, but they also had, um, they, they shared with females the suspicion and concern about surveillance, certainly, but they had uh, their own kind of unique perspectives on it and when it's good and um, primarily more aligning with females that didn't find value in surveillance and definitely expressing more extreme opinions against surveillance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in terms of uh, this this research thread or um, the other research threads that we've talked about, um, what are you hoping to do in 2020 in, in terms of uh, your research and where do you hope that things will go? Well, I'd like to this year, hopefully we'll be able to finish that lab work in the next month and publish our uh, data on the functional expression of olfactory receptor genes and extinct members of the genus mm-hmm. Homo. Uh, I've got a book that I need to it's due this year. I keep pushing the date back as other projects get in the way as well as other things. Um, and that's probably 90% written. It just needs, you know, me to respond to critiques from peer reviews and cool. so on. And um, so it needs to get finished. And I have some other projects that I want to wrap up. We're doing another study on festivals. This time we're targeting specific festival goers, um, you know, people who attend the same specific festivals mm-hmm. so we can capture a wider demographic. And, um, I also have a few other little papers that have been kind of carrying through the revise and resubmit process for a while that hopefully will get out. <laughs> you never know. I've got two that are in third review, which is really frustrating, but um, yeah. yeah. And there's some pilot data we're collecting on a uh, hundred gatherer olfactory ability that it's taking a while to get done for a variety of reasons I wouldn't get into, but, you know, it's largely um, infrastructural problems, not so much the research, you know, we've been awarded a grant. We just need to actually finalize all the logistics and get somebody into mm-hmm. the field. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, I hope all of those, all of that goes well. I hope all of it goes smoothly. Yeah. <laughs> so we're approaching the end of uh, our conversation and I'd like to just like bounce around a few different topics and quick questions. I know that like an early a- at an early age, you're very much interested already in like prehistory and animal biology based on like other interviews I'd read and influenced to some extent by like your father, who was also a geologist. Do you remember an interesting fact that he taught you when you were younger or something that you did together that was sort of prehistory related? Well, I guess first comes to my mind when you said something he taught me was that most of the rocks I found that I thought were interesting were just quartz. <laughs> so we'd, we'd go out rock hunting and I'd say, oh, here's something really interesting. He's like, no, nah, it's just quartz. Mm-hmm. Like no matter what I picked up. But I did learn from him tacit learning that uh, fossil hunting is an art, not a skill. And you have to just have the eyes for this. And it was reiterated in a book I read on um, Your Inner Fish by Neil Shubin on finding the Tiktaalik fossil, which is one of the earliest fossils we have Mm -hmm. of evidence for the first animal that lifted its head out of the water that developed strong enough forelimbs and lived in this, you know, amphibial sort of state Mm -hmm. as best we can figure out. And he said the same thing in there when he was training with his geology supervisor. He just see nothing but rock and his advisor would suddenly pull out a perfect trilobite. And he's like, where did that come from? I just looked there. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the things he taught me that science is not just an objective process, but it's also an art. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a really nice message, I think. I think so too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if people want to ask you any questions about your interview, where can people find you online? If you go to the University of Alaska Fairbanks Department of Anthropology, you can find me there. I also have my own website called smellofevolution.com. Mm-hmm. What, what sorts of things do you put on the website? I'm not as active as I used to be, but I use it as a blog forum and um, I've just gotten so snowed under with work and a variety of other things in the past few years that I've not been as active as I was. I used to post a smell of the week, something that interested me and look at the chemical compounds in it. I haven't done that in quite some time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I've posted preliminary data on studies. Uh, we were doing some urban smelling studies in London for a while and I was posting some data meetup times as well as the results of the studies on there. Cool. Um, you know, a few other things like ongoing projects, you know, description of my lab, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And do you have uh, like a smell of uh, this week that you can think of? This week, actually, the funny thing is this morning when I woke up, uh, I was thinking that I wanted to smell like Osmond today. Mm -hmm. I have a nice perfume collection, as most people who love smell and study smell do. Mm -hmm. And Osmond is a really unusual flower that has a very woody scent. And uh, it's really quite lovely. It's subtle and soft. And uh, for some reason, that was in my mind today. So it's still on my mind because I'm smelling it right now. (laughs) So yeah, maybe that would be my smell of the week. (laughs) Interesting. Um, And so with every guest before we go, I usually ask them for a hashtag, sort of like a little secret in every episode so that listeners can go on social media and use it to indicate that they've heard all the way through. Oh, I see. Okay. Can you think of a fun hashtag for this episode? I don't know. If we go with my smell of the day, it could be hashtag Osmond, but that might be a little difficult for people. Um, (laughs) uh, Maybe... Maybe hashtag sensory equity as a way of promoting sensory equity. Okay. What do you mean by sensory equity? That we can all enjoy the same sensory environments, that we can all live in areas free of air pollution, that everybody in the city experiences the same quality of air, experiences the same Mm -hmm. buffering from the noisy sounds of everyday living, that we can all enjoy visually stimulating environments that are, you know, mm-hmm. good for our eyes, that, you know, we, we all share that same sensory environment because we don't currently share that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you think that urban planners and people who work in civil engineering, are they in conversations with anthropologists enough about pollution? I don't think so. Uh, I know that there's concerns about pollution, but the interventions that have been made have been rather poor. I know one of the classic examples that I learned about, and now it sticks in my mind, um, when I was being interviewed by a freelance reporter in California was ginkgo trees that they were planted in many cities, certainly in the U.S., I don't know about elsewhere, as a great tree that was resilient in polluted environments and that would help clean the environment. Mm-hmm. They were really good at um, absorbing pollution. And this person, I she lived in California and I can't remember where, and she just said at certain times of the year, it just stank. And I didn't know what a ginkgo tree smelled like. And then I I noticed on my walks here in Lexington, there is what I've recently discovered is a ginkgo tree. And it releases these little berries that look like kind of pale, purpley pink pine cones Mm -hmm. that are very tiny. And if you step on them, they just smell like vomit. And uh, I know it's a ginkgo tree because apparently when they drop their leaves, they dropped them all in one go. And this day I was walking by and overnight they'd lost all their leaves and then those little things emerge and they're still on the sidewalk and I still step on them and they stink. Um, Mm -hmm. So so that's something I learned that was interesting. Here's an intervention that city planners had said, all right, we need to deal with pollution, you know, and maybe, maybe it was LA actually. We need to deal with pollution. Here's a great tree we can plant, but they didn't think through what that tree was Mm -hmm. and the negative effect it was going to have. So I think that there probably is definitely a lack of transdisciplinary oversight when it comes to a lot of city planning. Maybe that's changing. Maybe 
people are thinking about it. I mean, one of the issues with the surveillance stuff that we've been doing is the whole idea of the smart city, the assumption that technology is always good and equitable, but it's not. Yeah. So I think there definitely needs to be more engagement, certainly with the social sciences in terms of city planning and making sure it's equitable and certainly with, you know, ecologists, but I don't think that's happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and do you feel that the conversations are changing because of, um, you know, the, the, for example, like in 2019, there's been lots of news coverage basically about climate change or about the environment and humans' relationships with the environment around them and how we need to think about, yeah, equity and, and being more sustainable and taking care of everybody in society. Do you think that that's changing? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, there is a lot about the environment these days, but it tends to be unilateral, you know, the environment's bad, we need to improve it. But I don't think there's a whole lot of consideration about the individual level of Mm. contribution to negative Mm -hmm. environmental effects. So if you look at certain people who don't have a choice to not buy plastic products, who don't have a choice to be selective in the goods they buy, that they're sustainable. I mean, there's a larger Mm. systemic problem here. There are a lot of people who will be contributing to a poor environment simply because they don't have the resources, they don't have the ability to to make the choices that, let's face it, Mm -hmm. wealthier people can make. So I think that this is a real problem. And it's not fair to just say we need to change the way we are because the individual quite often Mm. can't make that change. So it definitely has to happen at a higher level, but these conversations that are promoted on the social activism side fail to consider these different participants Mm -hmm. in the problem and why they're Mm -hmm. not able to change, that it really needs to be global leadership that needs to take this on board Mm -hmm. and make the change. I mean, one of the the examples that I use when it comes to olfactory work is the mayor of London study, Khan did the study of pollution, air pollution in London schools, and he found out it was worse in the schools than it was in the streets. And in the study, they do note that the schools that were the worst off were the older brick and mortar Victorian schools compared to the newer built schools. And of course, those Victorian schools tended to be in um, socioeconomically deprived areas, areas that could be characterized by immigrant populations, people who descended from West Indians and Africans, you know, immigrants to that area as well as their descendants, and people who were not um, you know, who were challenged socioeconomically. So you've got a problem that clearly is demographic that they've identified. And the thing that they kept on harping on in this report was the health effects were asthma mm-hmm. rather than these larger systemic problems that come from air pollution that reduce olfactory functioning and that has been shown to cause cognitive damage in developing children. Yeah. So this is way more serious than asthma. Asthma is a problem. I have it. I know it's a problem. But putting your children in an environment that may cause cognitive impairment and damage to the brain is a huge issue. And that was not even considered in these reports because they were just looking at basic functional outputs of studies that they see other places, you know, that are well established and not really looking deeper into the literature. So I think these are examples of a lack of engagement as well as a lack of understanding, you know, on the one hand, not understanding how people are trapped into unsustainable lifestyles and other people, you know, the damage that are caused by these environments are not being identified correctly. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that there is anything that we haven't covered about your work or um, that you wanted to talk about? Or do you have any closing messages about... Uh, you know, these these research topics that you would like to say? I guess I'd like to say that I consider myself lucky 
I think that a lot of people think academia is a meritocracy and it's not. We all are lucky. We all are well-trained. We all have good minds. We all have great ideas. You know, I went to a grant running uh, workshop one time where the man who's running the workshop said, most of you have great ideas. Four out of five grants are not rejected for the idea. You know, and what it comes down to is different pathways in training, different pathways in terms of opportunities. And I think to believe you are where you are because you deserve it is one of the biggest mistakes a lot of academics make today. So mm-hmm. I guess I just feel like it's important to say that no matter where you are in the academic ranking, it's challenging. It's getting worse. Things are changing. This idea that you can explore your research ideas and study what you want to study and develop a wonderful career is you know, increasingly a myth relative to the way it was in the past when the field was much smaller and when our societies valued higher education and valued basic science, mm-hmm. you know, and um, there was some protection in academia to develop. Of course, things have changed a lot for better and for worse, but I think it's I think it's just important to note that that you know it's a uh, it's a privilege to to be able to work in academia but that increasingly other pathways look more desirable I think and um that mm-hmm. you know things do need to change desperately mm-hmm. in higher education yeah uh, that's a great message, I think. Yeah. So the Arcanand podcast is on social media. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, and Instagram at Arcanand Pod. If you would like to support this public anthropology and archaeology project with a small contribution every month, then go to patreon.com slash Pod, where you can find more information about the benefits of doing so. New shows come out on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you find podcasts, as well as our website, arcananth.com. And on the website, I'll also be providing links to more information about Kara's work. Um, thank you so much, Kara, for joining me on today's show. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> and um, please come back on the show uh, another time. Yeah, that would be great. I enjoyed it. And listeners, I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.